This is a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. Stargazer. Foxglove. Summer seemed to bloom against the will of the sun, which news reports claimed flamed hotter on this planet than when our dead fathers wiped sweat from their necks. Cosmos. Baby's breath. Men like me and my brothers filmed what we planted for proof we existed before too late, sped the video to see blossoms brought in seconds, colors you expect in poems where the world ends, everything cut down. John Crawford, Eric Garner, Mike Brown. You just heard one of Audiophile Magazine's 2020 Golden Voices, J.D. Jackson. He was reading an excerpt from The Tradition by Jericho Brown, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry this year. In fact, J.D. also narrated the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys. The Nickel Boys also netted J.D. a nomination for an Audi Award for Best Male Narrator. It's been that kind of a year for J.D. Jackson. His narration of Heaven My Home by Attica Locke was picked by Audiophile Magazine as one of the best narrations of a mystery. J.D. Jackson was one of the narrators in Jason Reynolds' book of short stories, Look Both Ways, chosen by Audiophile as one of the best narrations of a YA title. J.D. has been seen as a skilled and versatile narrator for some time winning an Odyssey honor and garnering a string of best of the years from Audiophile Magazine. But 2019, that was an extraordinary year for J.D. Jackson. When I interviewed him in New York City the very day of the Audio Awards, right before the pandemic hit, I asked him how he chose the books he narrated. I wish I could just choose. Uh, <laughs> they choose me, actually. But, you know, it was funny because with the Nickel Boys... You know, my, my wife was reading Underground Railroad by him, and she was just blown away uh, by his writing, and, and she was telling me about him. And I said, okay, let me keep an eye out for, you know, Colson Whitehead. And I, I, it was one of the books that I wanted to read, but it's it can be difficult trying to read the titles you want to read of when course. you're recording and prepping so much. But I, I kind of researched what he was up to next, and, and I saw that he was working on Nickel Boys, and I wrote that down, and I said... I want to record this book, and and I never do that really. I just said I want to record this book, and I you know I actually put it to you know put it to paper, and sure enough, uh, Kelly Gilday called me and was like, you know here's the here's the book, and I was blown away. I was like I actually spoke that into existence. So that's when I think I did choose, uh, you know. Well, good choice. I mean, it's a brilliant book. Yeah. It's a heartbreaking book. It's an enraging book. Yeah. How did you prepare? You know, the preparation is. And just reading it in and of itself, just understanding who the characters are, getting a sense of his language. Uh, for me, that's always the key, like reading aloud what the, how the author speaks through paper and getting a sense of his, his style, his, uh, his pacing, how he phrases words. And Because sometimes you'll, you'll be reading along and you're, you're unsure of how to approach each sentence. And then the more you read, you, you start to hear the, you know, the author speak. And you get a sense of his rhythm, his cadence, and his um, passion in the words. So once I get that down, which takes maybe a, you know a book, you know a chapter or two, then I know I kind of feel where this person is going with this. And and it immediately it was about a sense of hope. You know, I, I felt this sense of hope, but then there was a sense of hopelessness. Sometimes he saw a Funtown commercial while visiting his cousins in Georgia. 
Lurging rides and happy music. Chipper white kids lining up for the wild mouse roller coaster. Dick's mini golf. Strap into the atomic rocket for a trip to the moon. A perfect report card guaranteed free admission, the commercial said, if your teacher stamped a red mark on it. Elwood got all A's and kept his stack of evidence for the day they opened Funtown to all God's children, as Dr. King promised. I'll get in free every day for a month easy, he told his grandmother. In that book, you're describing scenes of unspeakable brutality, but you have to speak it. Right. And that just seems like such a, God, such a fine needle to thread because we have to be able to listen to it, too. Right. Can you talk about how you approach that? It is difficult. And there are moments when you have to stop. And um, Joe Grimm, he was the director on it, so there were these moments where he would be like, you know, let's take a deep breath real quick and uh, go back and, and get back into it because it was kind of difficult. But I will say this. Whitehead writes in a way, at least in this story, he wrote in a, he wrote in a way where he would take you to the, to the brink with the horror of the situation, but he never quite pushed you over the cliff. So, you know, a lot was left to the imagination, and he would set it up beautifully in a detailed way that you, you know, it was so specific that you knew exactly what came after, but he didn't have to actually spell it all out. So there was restraint. There was restraint, and there yeah. had to have been restraint, and there was restraint in your narration of it as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, it, it's, it's difficult. There are moments when you have to... You have to pull back the uh, emotion from what you're telling because then you can take away what the uh, listener wants to feel in that moment because everyone feels different things in each moment that they're faced with, uh, whether it's trauma or uh, the idea of hopelessness or the idea of battling through things. and So you want the listener to kind of experience that more so than hear you experience it. You know, exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. It's it's like somebody saying an actor on stage, you know, and he cried, and it's just like, well, right. yeah, it, that's not quite the point. <laughs> Am I crying? Exactly. That's what the do point. I feel? What do I feel? <laughs> so yeah, you do have to pull back a little bit and disconnect in a way, and and you kind of work all that out through the first reading anyway. You know, you know what you feel, you know what you're going to feel. So you, when you've already already read it, then you're prepared for that particular emotion at that moment anyway. So. Was acting something you always wanted to do? No, actually. It was it was weird. I got into acting in high school because you know, I was running the streets with my friends and getting into trouble. And me and a friend of mine took an acting class, you know, as an elective. And we, you know, we'd just clown around in class all the time. And, and, and my teacher, Mr. Mattins, he was like, listen, if you guys audition for the play and you get into it, you don't have to take this big test at the end. We're like, oh, yes, we're in. <laughs> Let's do it. No test. We're good. Let's get in this play. So we got into it. It was a play called And They Dance Real Slow in Jackson. Got into the play and fell in love with it. Fell in love with the with storytelling, you know, fell in love with the, the idea of storytelling. And I actually wanted to direct film. I wanted to, you know, write and direct film. But what ended up happening is I went to Florida A&M, I didn't major at the time because I didn't know what I actually wanted to do as far as what school I wanted to go into to focus on film. And once again, I had a, an instructor, play text and performance, Dr. Hyatt, and he was listening to us read scripts aloud. And someone had just dropped out of uh, the play at the time, uh, Checkmates. And 
He asked me if I would mind, you know, wouldn't mind coming down and giving a reading to the director to fill in for someone who dropped out. And so I ended up going in, and they, you know, put me right in the play. And I, I played act, I played opposite uh, Anika Noni Rose in, in a show there. And from then, I, I was caught up. I had the acting bug and loved every moment of it. And that kind of took me every step of the way from there. How did you get into narrating audiobooks? Well, after I graduated from Temple University, moved here. I loved New York, but I, I originally planned to move to Los Angeles. But we came here for a showcase, and when I stood on 42nd Street, I was like, nah, this is, <laughs> this is where I'm supposed to be right here. So moved here, uh, got an agent, uh, Atlas Talent, Rachel Sockheim, had me going on an audition for Claudia Howard. And went in, and Claudia just, you know, grabbed me up, had me read, and, it, you know, it was right after that. She was like, okay, so you're going to be coming in, you're going to be a part of this stable, and you're going to da 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 And I was like, hey, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. So... <laughs> Claudia introduced me to audiobooks, taught me how to approach it, and really gave me a lot of good work early on. So that was my introduction into it. I owe a lot to Claudia Howard. What was it about, and I'm asking you to go back, and I know this is a hard question, but I wonder what it was about narrating audiobooks that felt right to you. Well, I guess I skipped over some things. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually was in forensics in 12th grade, and uh, I won for dramatic interpretation for the state of Michigan. And so that was interpreting prose, interpreting uh, dramatic monologues. I kind of fell in love with it then. You know, I, I kind of realized that I just like to tell stories, whether it was if I was directing a play or acting or reading aloud. I just like the idea of storytelling. So it was kind of innate. As soon as I had to read aloud, even in, at church, when my mother would have me get up and read passages, and I would try to recite the longest passage <laughs> ever, and everyone would be like, oh, my goodness, and I'd be like, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, I've recited two chapters, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I've always just loved the idea, the concept of storytelling, you know, whatever medium. You've narrated three of Attica Locke's books. Mm. The latest being Heaven, My Home. And that's the second in the Darren Matthews series. Mm -hmm. And I have to say as a listener, it's such a perfect fit. It's, it's really you. wonderful you. what you do with that. Who is Darren Matthews? Man, Darren is a complicated guy, you know, and he has a passion for justice. But sometimes his passion for justice can be misguided. And he wants to do the right thing. He always wants to do the right thing, but he can't quite get himself all the way there. And he's troubled by his, his past. He's troubled by his upbringing. He's troubled by his relationship. He's flawed in that he, he seeks comfort in the bottle, and he escapes his problems and his, his issues through his work. But it always bleeds into that. You know, so I look at him as a kind of a, a tortured soul trying to find justice, trying to find the right way to live, trying to do right by people and a moral compass, you know, that he has for himself that he can't quite live up to. He'd spent the past two months calling his mother daily, stopping by her place nearly every weekend. He cleared tufts of chickweed and bluegrass from around her trailer, swept the stairs and cleaned the gutters without being asked always leaving her a few hundred dollars and a case of beer on his way out. It was a dance they were doing, this country waltz, each pretending that Darren was a son who had been waiting for just the right opportunity to take care of his aging mother. 
that he wasn't here now solely because she was blackmailing him. Although she never used such a crass word, and neither did he. I'm interested in the world building that Attica Locke does. Mm. It is so textured. Yeah. And her language is so rhythmic. Yeah, it is. And that's why I think it's a natural fit, too, for me, because, you know, I have to sometimes remind myself, especially when I'm recording by myself, to turn my uh, <laughs> headphones down because you, you can kind of fall in love with your own cadence and you're like, oh, this sounds like this. It's kind of melodic. And, <laughs> and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to slow it down a little bit. And then with her, it's so easy to do that because she's talked about the blues being such an influence on the story itself and on her writing. And it, it's so prevalent throughout all three of the books that I've read, you know, for her because she sets it, you know, in East Texas. Right the, near Louisiana. Yeah, you feel the sweet potato pie and, you know, <laughs> the whiskey, the bourbon, you know, it's it's right there, man. She's a perfect fit for me because I love her characters as well. I feel like I can identify with the characters that she presents, that I know every single person that she's actually written. You know, even Geneva in... Um, Bluebird. Blue, uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, Geneva Sweets reminds me of my grandmother. So when I read for her, it was like, oh, man, there's Medea. That's her. That's her 100%. So it was so easy to find these characters. So there's these characters that, like, we're in the same family. Like, she knows the same people I know. She grew up with the same people I grew up with and around the same people I grew up with. So it's a perfect match. I hope I can continue to do, you know, more of her work, so... I would think so. <laughs> Just you never saying. know. You, you never, never know. know but, right? but I wonder, J.D., especially through a series, how you keep the voices straight because, you know, it can be a hunk of time between mm -hmm. yes. books. Yes. Uh, well, with this particular series, it was a little bit easier. The first one, like I said, it, this one was easier because of the characters. I felt familiar with each character. And once I visualize who that person is in my mind, that's kind of how I read that person. So I don't say, oh, this person speaks with this inflection and, and this rate of speech. It's more, that's my grandmother. So if Genevieve's my grandmother, then that's her. Darren was more, I, I, I wanted to, to actually play him a little bit more like myself, just give him a little bit more weight, a little bit more gravitas, a little bit more heaviness. But everyone else, you know, once I decide who that person is in my mind's eye and my memory, then I rely on that to recreate that character again and again. Now, there are those who it's very difficult, especially with science fiction. I was just going to uh, ask you that. That was like, exactly my when, question. When you do a, well, it happened. When you, I, I won't say which series it is, but the first one, you do it, and you're like, okay, I, yeah, I'll write this one down. And then you kind of ah, toss, you know, the notes, and then the, you're like, there's another one? Oh, no. There's like 400 characters in here, and I don't. So yeah. So now, what I do, especially at home, is you know you have that track while you're recording, and you you make character tracks, and you, so that you can always go back to that character and and pull it up on the computer. Um, and then there's certain engineers that when they work with you, they'll put those characters on a separate track, and especially if you ask them to, and 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 they'll keep it there for you, so that when you return to that series, you can just pull them back up and just you know roll right right with it. You've narrated nonfiction like A Fool's Errand by mm. Lonnie Bunch. Yeah. He's now the director of Smith, the Smithsonian, but he was the founding director of the African American Museum of History and Culture, and he got it off the ground. Do you approach nonfiction differently than fiction, especially when the subject is living? Yeah. With nonfiction, I'm very careful to try to d detach myself from emotion um, and just tell the story or let people 
be informed by the information. There are moments where I, I do get connected to what they're talking about, and I try as much as I can to pull, pull away from that. And I imagine that whoever is telling the story, if it's first person, then I try to, you know, at least watch video of this person in interviews, get a sense of who they are, their temperament, how they speak, their, you know, their, their rhythm and pace, and, and then I approach it that way. So if the person is very relaxed and very measured in their speaking, then I have to make sure that I'm relaxed and very measured in my speaking when I deliver their story or their account of what took place. There are moments I remember doing uh, Martin Luther King stuff. That was my next question. I, it was the one time I actually shed tears in a, um, in a booth because I was reading his words and they were sermons. And I got emotional and I was like, whoa, this is, this is a little heavy right here. I didn't realize that would happen. So when that happened, it was like, okay, I got to pull back a little bit here because I'm getting too involved in the storytelling and, and too involved in the information that has to, you know, to come across. With, with somebody like Dr. King, I heard Stride Towards Freedom. And we all know that voice. Mm. So how do you cope with, with someone like Dr. King where you don't imitate him? Right. Well, that, that was one instance where I just wanted to get cadence, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to sound like him, but I wanted the cadence to be correct. Although he did not expect to become head of the MIA, King understood the boycott's broader implications. His hastily prepared speech that evening audaciously linked the MIA's modest initial objectives to American political principles. If we are wrong... The Supreme Court of this nation is wrong, and Christian ideals. If we are wrong, Jesus of Nazareth was merely a utopian dreamer that never came to earth. If we are wrong, justice is a lie. There were moments that it was hard to not slide into imitation, but it was important that cadence, because to me his writing goes hand-in-hand hand with his, his oratory. Uh, so it's, it was important to give it a sense of, you know, this is no ordinary man we're talking about. This is a man who's, whose image, his, his voice, his writing, his ideas, his persona, they all go hand-in-hand. Hand. So I, I didn't want to just read it as myself because I, it, I felt like I would have been doing it a disservice, you know, period. I had to give some respect to the man as an order, you mm-hmm. know, so... Yeah. yeah, it's a hard one. You did great. Yeah. You really did. Thank you. Thank you. Because it can fall into oh, this guy's trying to sound yeah, like and you didn't. Dr. King but there and was it sounds horrible. You yeah. know, it was almost like you were suggesting him. Right. Exactly. That's it. That's it. Exactly. And you've done some outstanding YA titles, mm. Jackie Woodson's Locomotion, right? And one of the narrators of Jason Reynolds' book of short stories, Look Both Ways. Do you have a different approach when you're narrating for young readers? Do you feel sometimes perhaps you want to do something to get their attention and keep it? Now, I will say this. As my voice has gotten older and, and more resonant, those YA titles have gotten fewer and fewer. But, uh, no, I used to love doing them when I was getting a lot more of them. Honestly, I was working with kids a lot during the time that I I did most of the YA titles that I did um, because I was teaching. And um, and so I always just wanted to make sure that the way I approached it was to be full of energy, to be engaging, and never lose that engagement because, you know, kids these days, 
my kids included, their attention spans are gone immediately. Well, there's so, so much competing. Right. Wow, Mr. Fantana, I thought you were all about life science. What we were getting ready to show you was life science in full effect, Simeon explained. I am, and I love y'all, but not today. Then he pointed at the door. Please. Simeon didn't argue. He just turned back to Kenzie. Come on, Kenzie. I don't want to be nowhere we ain't welcomed. So you can't have these lulls of, you know, okay, now let's get real relaxed and nuanced. They, they want it upbeat. They want it fast-paced. You know, they want to be engaged from the moment they put their headphones on to the moment they put them down. You've, you've acted in theater. You've acted in TV series. You've acted in film. And I'm curious, when you just have your voice... How is it different than having the physicality that you can bring to the stage or in front of the camera? Hmm. Well, you know, honestly, there's more of a focus, I think, um, because you do have, you know, lights, sound, all those things that go into collaboration. And within yourself, the collaboration of your body, your hands, your face, your, your singing voice sometimes, your choreography, everything that plays into it, your costume. And so you can rely on some of those things a little bit more heavily than you should. Whereas with this medium of storytelling, it's all about, you know, in, in, in theater, every director, every teacher will always tell you the playwright comes first. Everybody doesn't always agree with that, but uh, the playwright always comes first. So I always approached it from that perspective anyhow. But when you get to audiobooks, there's no way around that. You have to honor the writer 100%. Sometimes I feel even like, what am I doing getting a, getting an award, <laughs> you know, or being honored for an award? This, you know, this is his work. This is all his work. You know, I'm happy to be a part of it, a part of his storytelling. So it's easier because you get to sit back, let the author take center stage and just be a vessel, you know, so to speak. It's a different medium yeah. and you just have your voice. Right. On one hand, the toolbox is smaller right. because it's just your voice. But on the other hand, you have a far greater range of characters. Right, yes, yes. That you can... You do, yeah. And voice, if not embody. <laughs> the one thing that I, I think that was most difficult for me is focal point. When I'm reading, as make, making sure that whenever I am communicating, that I don't get caught up in I'm staring at a black wall, I'm staring at into just space, or I'm staring at some words on paper, that I'm actually saying, okay, I'm communicating these words to this person or to these people. So for me, it's about imagining someone else on the other side of that microphone and looking up and making eye contact with that person as I tell them this story, because like I said, the, the story is the thing. So I want to make sure that I'm communicating to that person as opposed to falling in love with my own sound and making sure that this is about something going forward. Storytelling is about something that needs to be shared and to be put out into the atmosphere. So, But you're right. The thing with audiobooks is that narration, it's that forward motion. You right. always have to be pushing right. it. And when you're and you sitting can... still sometimes and don't want to move too far off the mic, that can be a little challenging. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Just some nuts and bolts. How long can you record? What's your typical session? Uh... I'm notoriously crazy, uh, so engineers have, <laughs> I've always had to say I'm sorry, I apologize, because I can literally record 
maybe four hours without taking a break. It's a little insane. So if I have to record at night, I, I've gone at 12 midnight and taken like a, maybe one break and then went back into the uh, studio and then finished around 8 o'clock in the morning. So it's it's a little insane. And so I've had to apologize to a lot of engineers, bring them sandwiches for breakfast in the morning and say, you know, I'm sorry. And then I would always say, hey, listen, you tell me when you want to take a break. And then I know in their mind, they're like, yeah, right, whatever, man. You just, <laughs> you're just going to keep going <laughs> and going. I wonder over the years what you've learned as an audiobook narrator in terms of the craft of, of narrating. I think, you know, there's a lot of technical things I've learned, but... I think the most important thing I've learned is to appreciate this gift that I've been given. I remember when I first started out in acting, like I said, I wanted to be a filmmaker, but that didn't work out. So acting opened doors for me. So I said, let's go through this door and then got married right out of college and started having kids like two years later. And it was like, oh, no, what's happening right now? And then audiobooks just fell out of the sky as this amazing platform that you can still tell stories. And at first, I didn't appreciate it because I was so caught up in, oh, I, I had these dreams and I wanted to be this and I wanted to be that. And then there was, you know, oh, I have a baby and then another one on the way and then another one and everything got cloudy and then we had to move and, and it got crazy and you kind of get swept up in the world that's going on around you. And you have to sometimes take a step back and say, man, you know, I'm truly blessed to be able to do what I do for a living, you know, to tell stories, to to be a vessel for authors, to learn every day something new, to set my own schedule a lot of the time. The other thing is when I got to Dallas, I had to build my own booth, you know, to have a, a platform that allows you to be hands-on, to build something from nothing, to force you to work your butt off now to make it happen, and then to see the fruits of that labor come to fruition. And and then to be able to move to Dallas when Los Angeles is not good for your family and you have to move and you have to make some hard decisions, you know, this platform was a godsend. It rescued me. So I appreciate it more than ever. And when you appreciate something and you're intentional, things like this happen. So that's the lesson. Well, one thing that happened is you are being named a Golden Voice by Audiophile Magazine. So many congratulations for that. Thank you so much. And you said a little bit about what that means, but Audiophile (laughs) is the magazine for Um, audiobooks. Well, I've been doing this, you know, I thought about it. I was like, I've been doing this almost 20 years. And just getting to that place in my life where, like I said, I'm starting to appreciate the things that I have and where I am and where I'm at and who I'm with and what's going on around me, being present. So this comes at an amazing time. It's like the perfect timing for me because it's part of the, like I said, the lessons I've learned, you know, in life. And when you do those things, when you're intentional, when you, when you work hard, when you have faith and you, you know, you believe in yourself again, then things happen. Things happen in a way that give you confirmation that the steps you just took were the right ones to take and the changes you made were the right ones to make. Yeah, it's a, it's a big honor. And, and I, I had to be here this year because usually for the audience, I'm not able to do it. We, like I said, we have a family of five and we were growing in, in Los Angeles. So it was always difficult for us to actually schedule a trip and, you know, make these things happen. But this year it was, you know, my wife and me were like, you have to go. You have to be there and you have to just show up, you know. And, and that's the other thing, showing up.
you know, being present, showing up, and appreciating, you know, the moment. Well, congratulations, J.D. It's really so well-deserved. And thank you for the many hours of really great, great listening I've I've gotten from you. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's actor and one of Audiophile's 2020 Golden Voices, J.D. Jackson. You can find reviews for J.D.'s narration of The Nickel Boys, Heaven My Home, and pretty much all of his other titles at audiophilemagazine.com. Subscribe to Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts. Then leave us a rating on Apple because it does help people to find us. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at AudiophileMag. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.